Hi there, friend. My name is John Werner. I used to be a part of the largest cult in the United States. After studying the Bible, Christian history, and ministry, I set my sights on confronting the problematic nature of white evangelicalism in the United States. In 2019, I published my first book as a first step in addressing the subtle issues of this complex system. This podcast will continue that work under the same title. Welcome to The Cult of Christianity. We keep on being told that religion, whatever its imperfections, at least instills morality. On every side, there is conclusive evidence that the contrary is the case, and that faith causes people to be more mean, more selfish, and perhaps above all, more stupid. Christopher Hitchens quickly and articulately gets to the essence of anti-theism in this quote. Those with less academic understanding of religion might assume the three types of folks are atheists, theists, and the agnostics in between. More accurately, though, the spectrum of theism's endpoints are anti-theism and militant theism. Anti-theist, they look at the historical and theological data and conclude that believing in God causes harm inherently. This is different than those who merely have problems with organized religion. In fact, I've yet to find any Christian who doesn't have a gripe or two in that department. The anti-theist assumes that whether it be psychological, cultural, or some other unknown variable, faith leads to harm. What most people mean when they say popular atheists, Dawkins, Hitchens, etc., what they mean is anti-theist. Popular atheism and anti-theism can look remarkably similar, but the distinction is worth making. It is one thing to say, I believe there is no God, but quite another thing to say, I believe the belief in God causes harm. Now, the full range of belief is such a large spectrum that we can all argue about what determines X, Y, or Z. This Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, uh, vague spirituality, apathy, atheist, um, or anti-theism, what causes the most harm to yourself or other humans? I'm sure a survey of 100 people would have 100 unique takes or rankings. Our definitions of harm, faith, and rationality are rarely completely congruous. For the anti-theist, the evidence seems overwhelming that belief in God undeniably causes harm. Are they right? It seems I spend enough time calling Christianity a cult that I must be an anti-theist, right? The anti-theist equation goes, 1. We can only know what we can observe. 2. Some people choose to believe in a God we cannot observe. 3. Those people claim to know an unknowable. 4. Claiming to know an unknowable is a lie. Five, lying to yourself and others causes harm. Six, theists cause harm to themselves and others. So the fundamental elements to their logic are points one and five. We can only know what we observe, and lying to yourself and others is harmful. I'm inclined to agree that lying to yourself and others is harmful. The harder bit might be the claim that we can only know what we observe. Maybe we can only be certain of what we observe, but I'm not sure that is quite it either. Humans have a pretty rough track record when it comes to being right about fundamental truths about the cosmos, morality, science, and philosophy. 
I am progressive enough to be comfortable with the idea that we know more about the cosmos, uh, behave more morally, uh, have more scientific data, and are wiser in our wonderings than our ancestors were. I wonder how much more we might have to go, though. And, and who can know? Perhaps my anti-theist friends might point out that it is an unknowable because we can't observe the future. People did know that the earth was flat, but they were wrong. There is something romantically healthy about this sort of humility. Rather than stressing about what might be discovered a century from now, it is more profitable to focus on what we have already discovered and do the best with what we've got. While this might strike some as uncurious, it can also strike the curious as a route to relief. Trying to figure it all out has been the principle of the religious. Where they get stumped, they must say there is an answer, but only God has it. The atheist has no such obligation, and the anti-theist can say, we haven't discovered the answer, might never discover the answer, or might discover an answer and reach wrong conclusions, but we are never to blame for pursuing a concept. Perhaps a theist might find that statement relevant for daily living, but their belief in a god forces the issue. Theism causes the human to ask questions to the ether and hope their divine being has an answer, even if she or he doesn't reveal it. The unadulterated rationalist gets to end the existential wondering quickly by saying, who cares? The optimistic theist must answer, God. Perhaps the anti-theist critiques certainty more than engages with it, or at least does so in quite a different way. A mere atheist does not have to be certain. Their disposition grants them the luxury of saying, I have not seen anything to convince me of the unseen. An anti-theist says, I have seen what believing in the unseen does, and it is bad. An anti-theist may be no more certain about God's existence than your average atheist or agnostic, but they are certain that whether or not such a deity exists, theists cause more destruction than the rest. The main moral compass for the anti-theist is grounded in understanding the difference between empirical and the rest. Consider something more ethereal like the scientific theory of gravity. If you've watched the show Friends, you might remember an episode where Ross, whose job involves caring deeply for dinosaurs, and Phoebe, whose job involves singing Smelly Cat, uh, they were talking about evolution. The scene went as follows. Ross. You don't believe in evolution? Phoebe. I don't know. It's just, you know, monkeys, Darwin, you know, it's a, it's a nice story. I just think it's a little too easy. Ross. Too, too easy? Too, the, the process of every living thing on this planet evolving over millions of years from single-celled organisms is, is too easy? Phoebe. Yeah, I, I just don't buy it. Ross. Uh, excuse me, evolution is not for you to buy, Phoebe. Evolution is a scientific fact, like, like, like the air we breathe, like gravity. Phoebe. Oh, okay. Don't get me started on gravity. Ross. You, uh, you don't believe in gravity? Phoebe. Well, it's not so much that, you know, like I don't believe in it, you know. It's just, I don't know, lately I get the feeling I'm not so much being pulled down as I'm being pushed. While this bit is obviously hilarious, there is a contrast between worldviews being demonstrated rather artfully. The understanding of gravity has led to many important discoveries in physics, astronomy, oceanography, and other parts of the entire scope of understanding our material world. Ultimately, though, we more have assigned the term gravity to the Earth's pull rather than seen it with our own eyes. 
Just as there are plenty of people who still believe the Earth is flat despite evidence shown, many could do the same thing with our understanding of gravity. However, what might sound like equivalent views can devolve into nonsense rather quickly, as as, uh, Phoebe demonstrated later in the episode. Ross. Okay, Phoebes, see how I'm making these little toys move? Opposable thumbs. Without evolution, how do you explain opposable thumbs? Phoebe. Maybe the overlords needed them to steer their spacecrafts. At this intersection, what Ross and Phoebe are discussing are two rather different things. Phoebe is using her imagination to string together an exciting narrative. Ross is analyzing the data and accepting the best theory based on empirical data. The harm is if Phoebe assumes she is doing the same thing that Ross is. Phoebe is such a great character. I'm still going to give her the last word. Later, when Ross won't stop pestering her about her denial of evolution, she gets personal. Phoebe. What is this obsessive need you have to make everyone agree with you? No, what's that all about? You know what I think? I think maybe it's time you put Ross under the microscope. Here is where the theist and the anti-theist often talk past each other. An anti-theist is strictly against introspection devoid of outer evidence, while a theist allows for their internal inclinations to play a part in their ultimate decision-making regarding their worldview. But perhaps, in the anti-theist's defense, we are still being too abstract. Let's deal with religion's connection to societal failures. Most accusations center around a couple of human freedom Issues, the oppression of women, the mistreatment of queer folk, racism, tribalism, holy war, abuse of children, a rejection of science, and a totalitarian thirst for control. Are these charges accurate? In other episodes, I've addressed the patriarchy, bigotry, racism, and the abuse of children found in white evangelicalism. That's Colt's uh, particular flavor of harm likely did not come from nowhere. So let's assume there's some historical precedent. Even so, there are plenty of instances of secular patriarchy, irreligious bigotry, atheistic racism, and so on and so forth. Is it especially heinous in religious history? Well, decades of research conducted by social scientists have established that religious congruence, um, that's the concept of uh, the assumption, rather, that, that religious beliefs and values are tightly integrated in an individual's mind and that religious practices and behaviors follow directly from religious beliefs, or that uh, religious beliefs are chronologically linear and stable across different contexts. Um, In that sense, religious congruence is actually rare. People's religious ideas are fragmented, loosely connected, and context-dependent, as in all other domains of culture and in life. The beliefs, affiliations, and behaviors of any individual are complex activities that have many sources, including culture. Understanding the individual is a different thing from understanding people groups. People groups are also different not only based on generalized beliefs, but how much tangible power that people group wields. Throughout history and in different cultures, it seems people with more power are more susceptible to abusing it. So a better question might be, who has had the power throughout the world in history? One could say theists have had more power. In fact, anti-theists try to harp on this point quite a bit. And perhaps that is true. But perhaps it's a matter of opinion. For most of human history, most people have been somewhat spiritual. A lot of that spirituality has looked religious and theistic. 
But that has been less about identity and more about collective assumptions. It would be dangerous to apply a post-enlightenment context back onto all cultures, hierarchies, and governments throughout history. Even so, that does not mean morality has changed necessarily, more so that how we perceive individuals and collectives has not been consistent. Our self-awareness is a rather odd thing. While it exists in other animals, it pales in comparison to our levels. There seems to be something distinct about humans. While a rationalist anti-theist may point out that evolution has inflated our ego in order to make us change our environment so that more of us survive, and that existential dread is an unfortunate um, side effect, I tend to find that answer unsatisfactory. But maybe I'm digressing. Religion is not a universal or trans-historical phenomenon. What counts as religious or secular in any context is a function of configurations of power both in the West and lands colonized by the West. The distinctions of religious secular and religious political are modern Western inventions. Peace depends on a balanced view of violence and recognition that so-called secular ideologies and institutions can be just as prone to absolutism, uh, divisiveness, and irrationality. But once again, we might be talking in ideals and not dissecting the actual data. It is undeniable that both Catholic and Protestant churches have taken turns enacting violence on the other. It is true that early Christians created and now continue to perpetuate persecution mythologies in order to play the victim while they were actually wielding great political power. It is true that the Old Testament laws seem to not value all people as equal. It is true that Paul seems to reinterpret Jesus. It is true that Muhammad was a pedophile. Buddha created unnecessary hierarchies. Hitler claimed almighty authority. We should acknowledge the Crusades, colonization, and all the pain, harm, and violence they have begot. But, is this a fair critique against theism itself? I'm not sure I'm convinced. I make all these critiques myself and have found many theists are also rather critical of historical atrocities as well. What is true about theism is that it often unites people, whether it be for good or for evil. Nazis chanted God with us. Muslims and Christians have fought wars about whose God wanted them to occupy some sort of holy geography. Theism might not be the cause of harm in as much as it can be the glue that holds any given group together. Any fundamental belief has the power to unite folks who may otherwise be different. This happens in nationalism, rebellions, and in religion. So, an anti-theist might simply be against what the folks are uniting around. We should all critique morally poor behavior regardless of the faith of the instigators. The anti-theist likely feels freer to do this. Their fixation on theistic crime might be more out of reaction to a perceived power dynamic, not out of uh, psychological data about theism's potential destructive tendency. Even so, societal collapse is apparent on the stage in front of us, and behind every curtain seems to be some form of religious institution. How could any rationalist assume this to be a coincidence? Beyond this, anti-theists also note the inherent boldness that comes from believing the next life is more important than this one. 
the freedom to behave without fear of accountability is much more present when your allegiance is to a concept beyond the consequences of this terrestrial domain. So the anti-theist observes the data and feels justified in their disregard for those who believe in God. I've done my best to characterize um, this end of the spectrum well, and I'm compelled to say I'm not an anti-theist. Partially, I find it unnecessary to be anti-something that, one, I used to be myself, two, might be again someday, and three, find not to be the issue. All critiques of theism seem to be critiques of certain individuals and people groups, not actually a valid critique of believing in God. There are plenty of delusional theists, but I'm not sure their theism is what makes them delusional. Frankly, it may be fair to say the majority of theists, especially the white evangelical variety, fall into a specific category worth critiquing, hence this podcast. But plenty of smart, moral, reasonable people continue to believe in God. They may ignore their burden of proof, but that ignorance is not the same thing as automatically being pariah. God is influential as a literary character at minimum. However, the character of God wasn't contrived of in the same sense that we write fiction now. The first descriptions written about God or gods assumed an element of reality about it. This is significantly distinct from Shakespeare or other fictional accounts. While each individual theist imagines God slightly differently, that does not disqualify God's existence, much much less mean that belief in that existence is impossibly linked to bad behavior. In fact, pantheism, a doctrine which identifies God as the universe or regards the universe as a manifestation of God, is not in direct contrast with humanistic ideals. Critiquing specific religions is a much more intellectual approach than taking a shortcut and uh, declaring all theism as bad. The narrative of the anti-theist places their own views as persecuted. They see theism as the boogeyman and are likely projecting their own pain back onto anyone who identifies with something they regard as problematic. And fair enough, all humans do this to some extent. And I don't mean to psychologically condescend to the anti-theist. I know they hate that. I more want to emphasize that where they start is where they should conclude. Assuming no one can know whether or not a god exists is a humble proclamation, and criticizing the lack of humility among theists is, is probably fair. But atheism is a complex word. It is fine to believe there is not a manager of the universe. It is fine to believe if there is a god, its morality is different than human sensitivities. Further, one is free to say that the term God is so confusing that it makes no sense to believe in it. But to be anti-theistic is to go beyond all of this and segregate theists into a distinct category of humans. There is a type of theism that is worth critiquing. It is a type of theism anti-theists are more often critiquing, whether they realize it or not. It is the type of theism I critiqued when I was a Christian that I do as a post-Christian and what I will do regardless of the next chapters of my life. Militant theism deserves to be deconstructed, then dismissed. Militant theists claim that religion is required for a successful society. This statement relates to Meta-ethical claims in the philosophy of how theology relates to, relates to uh, morality. 
In the form of a question, is theism the exclusive rational prerequisite for being moral? A major distinction uh, is that there are moral arguments that are theoretical and those that are pragmatic. Theoretical moral arguments for God argue that God is necessary to explain all facts. Pragmatic moral arguments claim that morality is not attainable unless God's existence um, is believed in. The goal of these arguments is not usually to offer tangible proof of the existence for God in an empirical sense, but more so to explain theism as rational. Alvin Platinga, an author I read a lot of in Bible college, uh, has argued that reasonable belief in God does not have to be based on propositional evidence, but can be properly basic. On this view, reasonable belief in God can be the outcome of a basic faculty and thus needs no support from arguments at all. In response, some would argue that even if theistic belief is not grounded in propositional evidence, it still might require non-propositional evidence such as experience. So it is not clear that Platinga's view by itself removes the burden of proof challenge. Um, the anti-theists will continually harp on the fact that those asserting a claim must be responsible for the burden of proof. However, their presupposition is that we are atheistic creatures by nature, and that does not seem to be proven by historical accounts. You cannot say theism has institutional authoritarian power and is also somehow a belief that has that uh, no rational person would subscribe to. Unless you, of course, believe most people are irrational, which seems to be where many anti-theists land. The militant theist argues that the debate between atheism and theism is not simply an argument of whether one more thing exists in the world. In fact, God is not to be understood as an entity in the world at all. Any such entity would be, by definition, not God. The debate is rather a debate about the character of the universe. In other words, there is a distinction between the creator and the creation. Additionally, Thomas Aquinas argued that some things that are good are better than other good things. Perhaps um, some noble people are nobler than others who are noble. And in effect, Aquinas is claiming that when we grade things in this way, we are at least implicitly comparing them to some absolute standard. Aquinas believes a standard cannot merely be an ideal or hypothetical, and thus these degrees of goodness are only possible if there is some being uh, which has this quality to a maximum extent. He says, quote, There is something which is truest, something best, something noblest, and consequently something which is uttermost being, for those things that are greatest in truth are greatest in being, end quote. This basic formula has been repeated by theistic apologists ever since. However, the task of making this argument come to life often comes back to a skill in rhetoric, as it requires a common ground of morality, and further claims that morality is meaningless without assuming theism to be true. In the more pragmatic realm, the argument gets even more dicey. Pointing at all the good churches have done, or more specifically, all the good theists have done, is rather tough to quantify especially when all of our morals are much more relative than theists wish was true. In fact, I think anti-theists also wish we had more shared sense of morality. But the militant theist assumes that without their brand of morality, society would be more and more immoral. This makes militant theism diametrically opposed to progressivism, 
This kind of theist must assume that as we appear to become a more moral society, we are actually merely pretending or alternatively what appears to be moral is a lie. As we become more irreligious, the militant theist would expect poorer behavior. What theists might get right is that our awareness must be contingent on something beyond our mere social and parasocial hive mind. Otherwise, any discussion of morality would be so context-specific the concept would lose all meaning. Even so, God might be a convenient explanation for our consciousness, but certainly not a proven one. Further, a theist is forced to believe scientific discoveries to be consistent with their belief in God, never in competition with it. This is why six-day creationists and more literal Bible readers have great difficulty speaking in coherent sentences. Regardless, a theist is able to distinguish between rational empirical facts and where we derive our morals. While a non-theist will be somewhat limited to nature versus nurture, the theist is granted a third category, spirituality. And there are plenty of spiritual folk who are not strict theists, but they must usually concede there is something beyond the observable and will likely only be coherent if they reckon with some form of ultimate divine. Even so, militant theism is not even that gracious. That belief requires that all good done by non-theist is still the result of their deity. This narrow view might be internally consistent, but that does not make it fair. Once again, the militant theist claims to know an unknowable. Ultimately, no version of the moral argument constitutes a proof of God's existence. The premises are presuppositions, not facts. This does not mean the arguments have no weight at all. The cumulative case for theistic belief may be raised by various moral arguments. However, this never comes within a mile of theism being the prerequisite for being a moral person, much less a moral society. Post-Enlightenment Westernism takes ancient Eastern assumptions about deism and frames the conversation in a rather rational space, the problem is that theism is transrational. While, while the anti-theist sees transrational as synonymous with irrational, they are distinct terms. Going beyond is not necessarily going insane. What is irrational is assuming theism to be strictly rational. This is the crime of militant theism. The reason for moving theism into the space of being reasonable is because in order to argue that everyone should be a theist, you must make it essentially rational. And the easiest way to do this is to claim that in order for us to be more heavenly and less mere simulations of this celestial hellscape, we must believe in God. And there is a reason I label this brand of theism as militant. I'm sure some might find it rather harsh. Well, and maybe it is rather harsh, but it's not unwarranted. In our Western culture, we often think about how Islamic extremists have sought to spread their religion through violence. But Christianity and Judaism have had their fair share of blood on their hands as well, and sometimes in much more subtle ways. But beyond supposed holy war, this type of theism is militant in the sense that it is radical. It is one thing to say that I believe in God, but quite another thing to say everyone should believe in God. It may be dressed up through academia or mytholo uh, mythologized into 
folklore or tradition, but it is a revolutionary ideal to picture all those who aren't theist as problematic or worse, the enemy. The moral arguments for God have not usually been articulated for one's own spiritual enlightenment, but for the sake of proselytizing or maybe even worse, justifying the unjustifiable. The reason such a theism is militant is because it claims that the final authority in life is God. And making God the ultimate authoritarian allows actual authoritarians to make their tyranny reasonable. If emulating the divine, supposedly this being that originates morality, is to be admirable, then why wouldn't you aspire to reign over others? I'm sure a more reasonable theist might remind me to remember the creator-creation distinction. God is allowed to behave in ways that we aren't. But that phrase seems rather meaningless once deconstructed. Playing by different rules from God seems to be in tension with listening to his rules for our life. By the way, those rules come from the Bible, the most powerful church at the moment, and or laws from leaders he supposedly divinely appointed. Once again, it seems that theism asks more questions than it answers. Perhaps not for the individuals, but certainly for the collective, if we are supposed to subscribe to a theistic worldview. I'm not sure there is a way to believe in a God in any meaningful sense of the word without incidentally creating a hierarchical structure to human existence. I find this to be consistent with the fact that many militant theists seem to be wary of anti-hierarchy rhetoric and often propagate the benefits or at least some sort of naturalistic arguments in favor of hierarchy. I obviously spent can't spend too much time discussing anarchy versus hierarchy versus democracy in this episode. Though these ideas relate to the theistic spectrum, I want to limit my monologue to this simple point. Hierarchy is not the default. It's not the only structure found in nature, and if strictly enforced, is identical to authoritarianism. Militant theists pursue theocracy. They follow their God-supposed orders before they follow laws of the land. They use their God as moral authority before humanism. Their psychology depends on them making justifications that are outer rather than inner. They shout down the non-theist and wish to create a world where all non-believers change their mind at minimum. Again, not every theist is a militant theist, just how every atheist isn't an anti-theist. The danger is that the fundamental ethic of atheism, live as if God doesn't exist, is much freer than where theistic fundamentals lead, which is live because God does. While anti-theism cannot logically claim anything with transcendent certainty other than God no existy, militant theism can, from the top-down claim, God told us to behave this way. So fearing religious folk is not unfounded, even when it is exaggerated. Militant theism categorically distinguishes people and separates sheep and goats innately. While there are many different kinds of militant theists, they aren't necessarily what we would label as extremists typically. Outright physical violence is easy to point at as a problem. However, many are actually dumbfounded 
when they try to deconstruct what causes religious violence. And I get annoyed because what I can glean from social media reactions seems to be some sort of, it is tragic when people use religion to justify their violence. This implies the individual was doomed to be a perpetrator and somehow religion was the path of least resistance to justify the action. And this view is too simplistic. On the other hand, some chalk religious terrorism up to the perpetrator being a blind, brainwashed Sims character who acted based on what that ideology determined. And this, unfortunately, quickly fails to hold the individual accountable. Where the truth of both these responses intersect is that people function based on an exponential amount of variables, some of which they are self-aware of, some of which they cannot be. However, militant theism always places the first mover in every circumstance back on to their conception of God. Thus, depending on which institutionalized cult leader wants to make a statement, a religious terrorist is either obeying or disobeying God. They're either fulfilling their role as a radical or a martyr. And this is the consequence of labeling the source of life, the manifestation of the universe, the ultimate oneness, and other vague ways of explaining that thing we are all compelled to believe in as an ultimate authority. While there may be some philosophical or theological value in contemplating these higher concepts, it more often serves as a distraction from dealing with the pain and consequences of our real world. And if there be a realer world, it cannot be meditated on so heavily that we ignore our actual surroundings. This is the tragedy of militant theism. Further than the individual and people group dissociation that happens in this ideology, conversion should be the only logical mission in every militant theist's life. There are plenty of theists who believe that conversion is either a waste of time or not their responsibility. However, in militant theism, the assumption of all goodness coming from God makes it innately immoral to not propagate their narrative. In Christianity, this looks like wanting to save people from hell. In Islam, this looks like creating a holier society. In other sects, it looks like giving your friends an opportunity to improve their life. Conversion is a personal choice, even if it feels like your autonomy is rather limited. It is technically true you can accept or reject whatever ideology you want, at least in a full-functioning adult. Even so, we are also victims of our circumstances in some pretty unmalleable ways. Therefore, the militant theist seeks to convert through political structures, pseudo-humanitarian aid, business endeavors, media engagement, discipleship programs, and every single interaction they have with a stranger. In fact, much of the shame built into evangelicalism is that you can never evangelize enough unless you become a crazy person yelling on the street. The idea that you can argue someone into believing what you believe is a common misconception that all sorts of people with all sorts of beliefs engage in. It is true that good arguments can be convincing, but not in any absolute sense. All adults eventually think for themselves, even if the thought goes something like, I'm deciding to believe whatever I'm told by that guy. This is not an argument against arguing. I really enjoy being combative myself. Even so, converting someone to your perceptions is innately problematic. 
That desire is not for the good of someone else, but a rather egotistical assumption that what works for your head and heart works for everyone else. It might be close. It might even be exact. But to love someone means you have no desire to have control of their mind. Mature love automatically holds other folks' autonomy in high esteem. Conversionism reduces life to a math equation. If people have A plus B, they will arrive at C, and C equals D, and you have to get to D before you can get to E, and so on and so forth. The problem is that life is so complex that you'll end up with infinite variables, and you will commit your existence to a lifelong homework assignment that is ungraded, unimportant, and exhausting. The militant theist will tell you that there is a grade, and that it is important, and that it is somehow the source of true peace of mind. And they are wrong. Converting folks to your way of thinking is not a productive endeavor. The temptation to become a manipulative, abusive, and robotic person who supports manipulative, abusive, and robotic systems is overwhelming. And I will reiterate it. It is possible to be a theist that leaves people alone and does not agree that conversion is a pillar of a meaningful life. But those theists can't be Calvinistic. They can't be fundamentalists. They can't be jihadist, Zionist, or evangelical. The dogma inspires and requires its adherence to convert others. Militant theism is the sincerest subscription to theism. The internal consistency exists even when it gets confusing and slightly absurd. The ultimate reality for the militant theist is that theism is more important than anything else. Why wouldn't it be? After all, the certainty of God's existence and goodness cannot be just another part of one's worldview, but can only be rational if it is the center of one's worldview. And I don't mean to call my less radical theistic friends logically incoherent, but rather that their theism is more agnostic than not. Nothing wrong with that. I think I fall somewhere in there too. To recap, atheists believe there is no God, theists believe there is one. Anti-theists propagate that all theism is harmful, and militant theists propagate that all non-theism is harmful. And by the numbers, it seems anti-theists are slightly more accepting, but are still in the business of categorizing certain people groups as destructive. And I do this too. Imagine if you had to take a drink every time I said white evangelical Americans. Nevertheless, both ideologies find what people believe about God to be the ultimate thing worth critiquing rather than the specific behavior or toxic lines of thinking. The truth found in the extremes of this spectrum is likely about how important it is to stay grounded in the empirical without denying the power of believing in the supernatural. And Karl Marx has many fans and foes, partially because he was... He uh, once wrote that religion is the opium of the people. The truth is that while Marx was critical of religion, he was actually rather compassionate on the topic. In fact, the full quote goes as follows. Religious distress is at the same time the expression of real distress and the protest against real distress. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, just as it is the spirit of a spiritless situation. It is the opium of the people, 
the abolition of religion as the illusionary happiness of the people is required for their real happiness. The demand to give up the illusion about its condition is the demand to give up a condition which needs illusions. End quote. Marx is saying that religion's purpose is to create pain relief through fantasy primarily for the poor. And economic realities prevent the poor from feeling important and meaningful in this life. So religion tells them not to worry because they will find true happiness in the next life. Now, Marx was likely more antagonistic to theism than I am, but he is often interpreted as unsympathetic or insightfully dismissive, calling religion delusional. I think this interpretation is weak, and regardless, it's not reality. Religion can be a life jacket, and more than that, a legitimate path to happiness for some, and for many, it might be the only chance they have at it. And I distrust anyone who wants to critique people's personal pursuit of peace that causes no harm to themselves or others. However, that contingency is not a light one, and should not be optional. Do no harm is a fairly humanist moral that requires no belief in God to subscribe to. I will acknowledge that moral fabric has a spiritual component in that believing in a God would absolutely change how one perceives the definition of harm. All of the moral relativism gets very exhausting, and the temptation to subscribe to something like Ten Commandments, the Two Commandments, religious propaganda, or any systemic answers to the chaos is there. Out of the systems, many cliches and norms have been established. However, I am compelled to leave the spiritual component of morality vague because even the limits of language and context seem to create more rules than they describe. And maybe it is the poet in me, but I think trying to get to morality through humanistic rationalism is rather dull and nonsensical, while doing it through fundamentalist interpretations of what God is becomes elitist and contradictory. The truth doesn't need to be in the middle or the extremes, because vague spirituality allows you to reject the paradigm altogether. My biggest problem with anti-theist, besides the general correlation I perceive of those who are anti-religion, they, they tend to be arrogant ass- it's also that it creates this limiting, limiting allegiance to progressivism. To assume all answer, ancestors in all of history who believed in fantastical, mystical, and theistic concepts lacked so much knowledge, wisdom, and insight that we should reduce them to barbaric victims of circumstance who would never think like they did if they were alive today. That's foolishness. I don't think belief in miracles is a denial of all scientific conclusions, and I don't think respect for the scientific method is an automatic denial of supernatural factors. This isn't toxic, woke centrism. This is humanistic acceptance of the both and. I'm sure the intellectual nerds at the ends of the spectrum will get closer on the horseshoe in order to categorize these statements into some box that they can deconstruct, and honestly, I welcome it. I clearly enjoy deconstructing things myself. What I get sick of is the failure to recognize that systems are essentially made up of real humans, and it takes individual leaders, followers, and bystanders to make people groups. I can recognize, respect, and even love individuals, or even my conception of those individuals, while detesting the systems they create and sustain. 
the anti-theist rightly has empathy for the victims of religious harm, and the militant theist rightly desires ultimate good for all of society. But the anti-theist wrongly reduces historical realities to suit their narrative, and militant theists wrongly disregard the beauty of the individual mind. I guess one could say, I'm actually just trying to critique extremism, but that word is vague enough to connotate um, caricatures rather than deal with the factors that are emblematic of these people groups. What they believe often does not sound extreme, and much of their poor behavior is normalized. The cult that I continue to critique, white evangelicalism in the U.S., is absolutely theistic in a militant sense. They do want to infiltrate every part of society. They do believe their message is the only kind that can save a soul. They have defended violent and vile colonization, psychological abuse, and violence. They believe in a God that hopefully does not exist. Being anti-militant theism is not the same as being anti-theistic. I think it is tempting for us critics to blur those lines. Not all theists are militant. All militant theists are worth critiquing, but it is worth keeping this nuance, not only for credibility's sake, but also for morality's sake. Again, the distinction between believing in God is different than believing all should believe in God. Being anti-theist is uh, prejudicial of individuals and collectives. This has led to mass Islamophobia in the U.S. among non-theists. Again, Islam is worth critiquing, but fundamental Muslims are militant theists. But Islam, like many other religions, is wider than the fundamental dogma. Those who are anti-Christian have a fairly small view of Christianity. So what about me? I do have a book and a podcast called The Cults of Christianity, a fairly unnuanced title. I also engage with spiritual concepts charitably and often earn the label neo-Buddhist, new ageist, or most lazily, an emotive millennial. As I've said before and will continue to say, I'm worried about white evangelicalism in the United States and acknowledge that sect of Christianity is perhaps the most powerful group or at least the most associated connotation of the religion. I also am fine if my critiques of evangelicalism apply to a broader context of Christianity. I am no longer Christian, and I am anti-Christian in a contextual, educated, and reflective sense, not in the sense that I view Christians as the worst, deserving of uh, eradication, or that all Christians are necessarily foolish. But the biggest distinction between my dedication to deconstructing what I perceive as a cult and the ideological demands of anti-theism is how I relate to the concept of certainty. The whole point of this episode is that certainty about the unknown will cause problems. While I might get along with those who critique religion at every point, believing the belief in God will poison everything, that's its own type of certainty. And the psychological data and historical narratives simply don't allow us to take the shortcut that believing in God automatically causes bad behavior. Likewise, it doesn't bear out that it always causes good behavior. Further, these big concepts are not mere 
tools for being a good boy or a bad girl, but our fundamental wondering about why the hell are we here? Militant theists and anti-theists share the flaw that their perception is reality. Each of them will acknowledge the flaw in the other, but struggle to acknowledge it in themselves. They are twins, calling the other one evil, when they are born of the same mother with the same nature and similar nurturing. We don't have to be anxiously questioning everything and drift into an existential or nihilistic panic and deny the empirical. Epistemology is an important field, but sometimes the healthiest thing to do for both the individual and the collective is to shrug and mutter, I don't know. Listener, I don't know if God exists or not. I struggle to know if I'm a technical agnostic, a practical atheist, or a theist in touch with my doubt. I also don't care. We don't have to care. We don't have to do anything. We make choices based on what information and insight we have. Breathe. Exist. Don't stop the pursuit of truth, but don't start the pursuit of certainty. It's okay to know you don't. One of the tragedies of ideological propaganda is the limiting of individual creativity and the death blow to living in the moment. Using the past to justify the present pursuit of knowing the future is a losing game. History is fine, but it also isn't now. The future is worth, worth caring about, but impossible to know. So how can we address militant theism without slipping into the trap of becoming anti-theist? Simple. Love others. Learn from others. And be the person you want to be. The rage I feel towards white evangelicalism and its adherents is grounded in who I love and what I've learned and who I want to be. The disappointment I feel towards anti-theism is based on who I love, what I've learned, and who I want to be. The academic side can be a helpful journey to walk through for the sake of growing in our understanding and deconstructing then reconstructing our perceptions. It is not helpful for the sake of choosing one of two teams. In any case, this exercise of being free, of being who you are, and of critiquing the right things in the right way, that's all impossible in the cult of Christianity. Oh, yeah. Look, you could buy my book, you wanna buy my book, go buy my book, go to VernerBooks.com, yeah, yeah, go to VernerBooks.com, yeah, yeah, go buy my book and buy my book. If you go to VernerBooks.com, you can buy my book, you can buy my book, yeah. The Cult of Christianity, exclusively available on Amazon. You can search the Cult of Christianity, how churches control, contain, and convert by John Verner, or you can go to VernerBooks.com. You can go to VernerBooks.com. Go to VernerBooks.com. Buy my book! Buy my book! Buy my book. If you wish to learn more about what's going on in my life, or wish to purchase my book, go to vernerbooks.com. 
If you'd like to support this podcast, please continue to listen, follow, share, and consider supporting through the link in the show's notes. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can help me book guests, upgrade my production value, and start exciting projects. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep love in your life, hope in your heart, and searching in your soul.